Welcome to TB Community. I am Elliot Shibley, and here with me, as always, is the exemplary Robert Domeno. Thank you. I, that one sounds familiar. I don't know if it is. Pretty sure we haven't. Okay. We got the list. We can verify. We do. Yeah. Maybe we will after this. So today, today's guest is a duo, a couple, Jules and Christine of the Not So Bon Voyage podcast. They have a hilarious podcast where they just dig into stories about when, uh, when things go wrong on the road. And that can mean a few different things, whether or not it is trouble with the law, whether it's an injury that someone suffered, just uh, it's, it, it's a broad, it, it gives you a broad overview of all the different ways things can go bad for different people. It, it's a, it's a hilarious podcast niche. And Jules um, and I have spoken multiple times now since this conversation through Facebook, and he's becoming a close friend uh, of the show. So Ended up being a really interesting conversation, and, and we hope you enjoy it. So before we get into the full episode, I do want to mention that you can talk to us through our Facebook community page, where we will actually answer specific questions. You can subscribe to us on YouTube if you're listening on a podcast. If you're listening on YouTube, you can listen on a podcast. And Check us out on social media. We do post all of our photos from our guests on our social media pages that correspond to the episode for more information. And we've got our website, which has very detailed show notes that you can look at. And now that we're on our new podcasting platform, we actually have timestamps that you can click on and go to exactly to that section. So if you don't want to skip or listen to this part of it, you can do that. Go ahead. And I do want to promote our website. We have updated this a lot over the last several months during COVID-19. We have a new newsletter that if you sign up for, you will get a free travel cheat sheet that kind of goes over things to do and think about before your next trip. We have consulting services where you can sit down with Mr. Demena and he will help you plan your trip. There are various options available or you can purchase the full package, which includes four sessions, or you can get one of them. And then we have some blueprint tutorial videos that are in production and they should be available next month, which is basically the cheat sheet on steroids. So it's really going to help you get into the nitty gritty blueprint developing itinerary building for your next trip. And we've got a new travel around table series, which is very exciting. We, we look into the gray areas of travel and talk about it with a panel of six individuals four people, including Bob and I, and we basically hash out what the different sides are and where we go from there. And then lastly, we have our very own tour guide that is available on our website, two tours exclusively available through the Traveler's Blueprint with Keschler of Le Canard Tourism, and both trips are available in the Philly area. So if you're in within driving distance to the Philly area and you want to get a nice tour please check out the website, see if you're interested in them, and book them. Now it's time to get into the actual episode, so without further introduction, please give it up for Jules and Christine of Not So Bon Voyage podcast. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Jules and Christine, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast. Thank you so Thanks much so for much having us. us. Yeah, really looking, yeah I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. We met uh, through Facebook, through a Facebook comment in another group, I think for podcasting in general, uh, where you, you mentioned uh, that you were looking to collaborate with somebody. I reached out to you. 
uh, we've I was on your podcast last week, and now here you are on ours today. Uh, you you have some interesting stories to tell, and a lot of or a sector of your podcast now is about horror stories as they relate to travel, which I find really cool and fascinating uh, because a lot of times people tend to want to share the more uh, the happier experiences, the times that things worked out and glamorous. Right, yeah. right. And and sometimes these horror stories are suppressed. You're bringing them to light. And so I'm really looking forward to talking to you today about your own travel horror stories. No, well, we got a few. Yeah. Well, the trend with travel nowadays, especially with social media and Instagram is showing off like the perfect crystal clear blue water in the Maldives or just like, yeah, the glamorous side of travel. But then when you come back from a trip, the stories you want to tell your family and friends are the stories where shit went crazy. And can I swear on this? I'm sorry, yeah. I didn't ask. Okay. No. But yeah. <laughs> oh, no? No, you're, you're good. You're good. Sorry, yeah, sorry. You're, you're fine. Okay. Don't swear, Christine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to our podcast where we just say everything. Yeah. So when stuff went crazy and things just went totally wrong, that's the story you want to tell your friends and family. And that just makes the most interesting stories. So that's what we tell on our podcast. Yeah. And I think that sometimes those are the stories that in the moment, they're the most stressful. They're, they're the ones that, you know, you're pulling your hair out, you're stressed, you're worried. But then when you actually look back, they're the ones that you tell people the most because they're the funny ones and you see that inner strength that you had, or you see how you problem solved in the middle of Guatemala or how you worked that out in the middle of Thailand and you just like made it happen. And then that's the memory because every beach is the same when you, when you get around to it, but those travel stories, those key ones, when things go wrong on the road. Yeah. That's what uh, the not so bombage podcast is all about. So can you tell us the history behind the Not So Bon Voyage podcast, and what road led you to starting it? Yeah, so Christine and myself, we both work in travel content creation. We have been traveling for over 10 years. So I guess our story goes back back a little bit before the podcast started. When we first met in Peru in 2012, we were volunteering. And I'm, I'm from Melbourne, Australia. Christine's from California. So opposite ends of the world, we were volunteering together in a, a disaster relief project in Peru. We met, we started traveling, we kept traveling, we spent a few years backpacking through Central and South America. We decided to start our travel blog, which is called Don't Forget to Move. We write about adventure travel, sustainable tourism. So we've been in the content creation space for six years now, seven years, uh, about three or four years professionally. Um, so the podcast has just been an extension of that, looking at, like as Christine said, all of our travels that we write about, what we show on Instagram is the overwater bungalows in the Maldives, the, you know, the, the cliffs in Bali, like all the glamorous stuff. And so we wanted an outlet to tell some of those stories that were not so glamorous and when things didn't go right. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Podcasting is awesome. It, it, it is. has been fun. That's it. Not, not that uh, we have similar histories with why we started the podcast, but Ellie and I, we both started to like settle down mortgages and our jobs. And so, we looked to the podcast as a way to uh, still satisfy Wonderlust in some way by interviewing people that were still traveling the world on a regular basis. And so that's part of that was also uncovering and learning about the background to the social media content that you see in the travel world. Because <clears throat> so often you see these beautifully edited or, or choreographed pictures and 
I know that I was always generally curious about the background of and understanding how that person got to that location in Peru or figured out where this waterfall was in Bali. And and that's kind of how we started this podcast, right? Just general curiosity for learning how people like yourselves do it. And mm-hmm. uh, and, and that's kind of where we are today. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to lie. We do take those those photos as well. I mean, I think, I'd like to think we keep it pretty real in our captions and we're pretty down to earth with our stories and things like that. Uh, our business is in content creation. And so, you know, we've been working, I wouldn't say we're professional photographers, but, you know, we get get paid part of our job is is working on content for brands and and companies so you know part of what we do is making that glamorous side of travel look good but we always try to keep it real i guess my question is how do you not get people in your photos (laughs) i assume there's just like a bubble around it and then everyone's like piled up on that bubble and then the bubble pops and then there's no more glamorous picture Lots of patience and trying to find places that people haven't been before. Mm-hmm. So locations that, I mean, you don't want to go to the exact same waterfall in Bali that every other person has been to. It just gets so boring and everybody sees it on their feed. They're just constantly strolling. So we're trying to find places that are a bit more off the beaten track, less populated so we can get those shots. But in the more popular places, we pretty much just have to be patient and get up really early as well, which I hate doing. And Photoshop. You can Photoshop. <laughs> it's amazing Photoshop, how many yeah. people you can Photoshop out. But That's I, true. But I mean, a lot, of our, a lot of our travels was rooted in getting off the beaten track. Like we started as budget backpackers. We weren't, you know, even now still, we, we don't travel super glamorous. We have, you know, we have done the overwater bungalows in the Maldives. That's probably one of the more baller places. But uh, yeah, like we started spending years, you know, three, three, four meals in a row, beans and rice, traveling with Tupperware containers as we took 16-hour buses through Colombia, sleeping in airports, sleeping in $2 a night, hostels, traveling with hammocks, stringing them up. Like, we've we traveled like that for years. And so a lot of our travel is rooted in trying to get off the beaten track, trying to find those places. And so we've had those experiences. And, that, and that's a big part of, of the podcast as well. Like, those traveling like that, that's when those experiences happen. That's when those... Not so bon voyages really, really come out when you're, when you're traveling local and you're trying to, trying to save pennies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, that travel style that you're describing right now is always, it, it fascinates me. And I think it's what separates people uh, from being a tourist compared to a traveler. And so can I ask, you know, it's easy to think of what it means to travel like that, but how do you actually do it? Do you just... Do you always just wing it or do you have a, a set plan even in the, the chaotic state of you know what you might experience in these weird countries where you're kind of off the beaten path and no one speaks English? Do you still have a plan or do you say, let's just go for it? We are definitely not planners. We, are, we actually probably should plan more because it gets us into some tricky situations. Now that travel is basically our career, we do have to plan a lot more because we do have to develop those relationships with tourism boards and brands and pre-plan that work. But back in the day when we were backpacking, it was literally like we're in Central America or we're in Southeast Asia. Let's just go like barely any research. Just find a place. If we like it, stay there for a week or even a month. We would sometimes, you know, we'd go down to Mexico, Southern Mexico and find a city we loved and 
book an apartment for a month and just stay there and try to live like a local. Or some days we'd be like, we don't really like this place. Let's get out of here and catch a bus and go somewhere else. It was pretty much all fly by the seat of our pants, pretty which much, yeah. was awesome. Yeah, good 18 months. So as I was saying, Chris and I both met in a disaster relief organization in Peru early 2012. We spent six months there working together. And then after that, we kept traveling together. And we basically spent the next 18 months doing Central and South America and Mexico. And it was just, yeah, just where do you want to go? You want to stay? You want to go? Yeah, this place is cool. We'll stay for a bit. Mm-hmm. And how did that evolve into doing it as a full-time job? Uh, we ran out of money, yeah. <laughs> basically. <laughs> so we were working in nonprofits, and that was what we were really they, passionate. They pay really well when you're a They volunteer. pay great. Yeah. You just make tons of cash. <laughs> yeah, make so much money. <laughs> if you can't tell, there's a severe hint of sarcasm. Just a little bit. Um, so, yeah, we basically knew that we wanted to continue traveling. We didn't really want to go home and get nine to five jobs. And we were trying to figure out how we could make money while traveling. And this was before the digital nomad movement, before we knew about like drop shipping and affiliate income and all of that kind of stuff. So travel blogging was one of the only ways we could see people that were online traveling and making some money, not a ton, but at least something so we could, you know, spend $150 a week in Central America. Then we were like, we have plenty of photos and stories that we can put up on a website and share with people and tips and advice and everything. So yeah, that's kind of how it started. We were like, we need to have some sort of income to continue traveling. So let's put this out there and see what happens. And this is mid, this is mid, we had this idea at the start of 2013 when blogs were very, I mean, Instagram was nothing compared to what it is today. Uh, It was mostly Facebook pages. That's when you used to get reach on those. Uh, There was very few travel blogs. There was no courses. There was no courses on how to make courses. There was nothing, there's no teachable and Skillshare. The idea of people selling courses on or even eBooks on how to start a travel blog was just non-existent. There just wasn't the industry for it. There were very few travel bloggers. We like to say that we're in like the second wave of travel blogging. The OGs in the first wave are kind of like the 2010s, a little bit before that. They're your um, Jody, like Legal Nomads and Garyan and some of those old school people, Nomadic Matt. And, and so in 2013, when we started, it was just, we actually started as an idea of, well, maybe we can get a free hostel stay like a $5 dorm stay when we're in Nicaragua or maybe we can review a tour or something like that. And just, yeah, kind of built out a necessity as well, thinking we're both from different parts of the world. How are we going to, like, how are we going to make this work? What are we going to do? So it was sort of in the back of our mind. It wasn't really like a full-on career idea until probably the end of 2015, I'd say. Don't you think? Yeah. And then- yeah. That's interesting. And so what, what part of your travel business took off first? Was there anything specific that you realized people really were, were taking to? Uh, I'd say the end of 2015. So we just finished up seven months in the Philippines. We did another six months working in a disaster relief organization in Tacloban, which is the city that was hit the hardest by the super typhoon in the Philippines in 2014, no, 13. Shit, I got my ears wrong. Um, and so we we spent uh, six months there, and we were at, we were juggling a lot of things. We were sort of travel blogging. We were doing that. We were also getting our masters. Both of us got our masters a couple of years ago in international development. And the travel blog was like 
are we going to keep doing this or we're not going to keep doing it? And then we decided there was a travel blogging conference in Bangkok at the end of 2015. And we were like thinking about, should we go? Should we not go? We'd never done any kind of networking with other travel bloggers. We'd never done any kind of professional development or anything. So we just thought, all right, bite the bullet. Let's do it. Let's get back to Thailand. We'll go there. We went to this conference and suddenly we started learning that, oh, about affiliates, you can put affiliate links in your blog and you can make money that way. And you can partner with brands, which we, we've done on a small scale, but not massively. And then just a whole bunch of different things sort of started clicking. And I think that one of the biggest things for us was upping our writing skills and probably upping our photography, which made our content creation sort of more desirable, I guess, for brands. And that was some of our... <coughs> That was, that was some of our bigger things. So working in partnerships with brands was probably our first sort of big start, I guess, in working on it full time. And I think when we started focusing on sustainability and mm. eco travel, it, it was something that we weren't really focusing on before, but coming from um, a nonprofit background and an international development background, it was something that we were just really passionate about. And when we kind of married that with the travel it sort of was like, oh, this makes sense. Like, this is our niche that we need to focus on. And when we niched down, it really took off after that. Uh, you know, tourism boards that want to focus on eco destinations mm. were reaching out to us. Travel brands that give back, things like that. Um, sustainable travel gear. It was, it, that I feel like was a turning point when we started able to make it more into a career. Yeah, because we were already writing about that stuff. We just hadn't called it responsible tourism. Like those, those weren't even really buzzwords back then. People weren't saying ecotourism. Uh, like eco, yes, but not so much sustainability and, and responsible tourism like they use now. So we were already writing about how to you know, find local experiences and how to be a good traveler, so to speak. But we just weren't putting it in the framework of sustainable travel. And so once we, after we finished at this conference, we realized we needed to niche down focus on that because we were just running about budget backpacking and authentic travel and we're like no let's make a specific focus on sustainability and yeah as christine said that that was a big step step for us awesome yeah i think it is mm, sustainable travel ecotourism are two massive buzzwords that have kind of hit their peak maybe not even their peak yet but still really important to a large mass of people, especially folks in our generation that are very cognizant of climate change, very cognizant of cultural impact while traveling and, you know, the white savior. Mm. Yeah, it's been an interesting uh, past few years. We don't volunteer or work in nonprofits anymore, um, but that was how we started traveling basically. And it kind of right after we stopped doing that, the idea of the negative effects of volunteerism became like there was more light on that. And so we kind of had to look back on some of our previous experiences and be like, okay, was this actually benefiting the local community? Um, and then, yeah, we both got our master's in international development. And then we were like, okay, maybe this isn't really the route we want to be going down with the volunteerism. So, so can you, Elliot, you said, the white saviors, and this is something that I'm still learning about. Um, can you explain what that actually means? Essentially, it's the sort of 
Western ethnocentric view that you can be the one that can provide the answer and the solution to somebody else's problem, which is, has a vastly different complex cultural understanding of how they approach problem solving. So that's like a, <laughs> so that's kind of like the, the big sort of explanation, but the biggest one is just you thinking that you know better than the locals. They're like, that's a more simplistic view. And, and so, you know, volunteerism over the last few years has become a huge buzzword. I, I would to just to defend ourselves a little bit, even though there are things, as Christine said, that we would look back, most of our stints were working usually for six months in mm -hmm. organizations. So like long-term community development, not doing like working in an orphanage for two weeks or, you know, patting elephants and for, for a week. So a lot of the work that we were doing as which was alongside our masters in international development was working with community groups, doing the long boring stuff that people don't want to do the surveying of communities, working out how to strengthen local community groups, um, like institutional strengthening, uh, financial literacy, business management training, things like that to help groups better themselves, like providing tools to those groups. But a lot of the volunteerism things are, they're flashy photo like opportunities that people can go and get a picture helping some kid in Africa um, and post it on their Instagram. And so, you know, th that's, that's the negative side that has got a lot of slack over the, the last couple of years. And I think rightly so. Um, and there's been a lot of, unfortunately, it's an education. It's not the people. And we're, we're very much about trying to educate people as opposed to, you know, pointing the fingers. And unfortunately, it's the middlemen of these organisations that have really capitalised on volunteerism as opposed to, a bunch of people out there trying to be shitty and do the wrong thing. So it's really just about educating people as to the negative effects that volunteerism projects can have on communities as opposed to shaming them for it. Yeah, I think that's a great point that you made. It's because a lot of the people, even if they are, you know, the, the classic example is the, the white family or the white couple that goes and they, they go to Africa and they say that they're building a well or something. And you go to their Instagram page and it's all selfies with the African kids in the background. And that's what has gotten flack over the years and rightfully so. But I, I think that in the anger towards that process, it's being taken out on the woman or the, the man who has the picture and took the picture when it's not necessarily their fault because their intentions are pure most of the time. And so I think there's, two ways to, it's not just educating the person on researching the right organization to go with, but it's also educating the people who are coming down on those people for making mistakes too. Does that make sense? Uh, it, yeah. There's a lot of work to be done in this area, it seems like. But, uh, Unfortunately, a lot of people also, there's kind of a, a catch-22 between these projects that Western countries or whoever, let's just say, you know, developed countries helping developing countries is that you get yourself in this situation where uh, a family wants to come down to Mexico and build a school. Okay. It costs $10,000 to build a school. They, their trip also costs $10,000. So you could say that if they didn't go down to the school to build the school, because let's be honest, they probably can't build a school They have, you know, the resources would be better used for local labor to provide jobs 
So instead of them coming down and spending $10,000 to build the school, they would just donate their 10,000 and two schools would be built. But the problem is, is that if those people don't have those experiences, if they don't have the opportunity to come down and build that one school, they're probably not going to build, donate any money and there'll be no school. So you kind of get caught between the situation where is it better to have no schools and that family doesn't go down there, but they've learned the lesson of supporting a community differently, or is it better to have one school? Because people want to be a part of these experiences and they want to provide and they want, it's these tangible experiences that help inspire them to provide support for future generations. And maybe they tell their friends who then donate. But without those tangible experiences, without the selfies, without those sort of, not egotistical, but kind of like those opportunities to show what they're doing, there might be no school. So it is like, there are situations there and, and that same thing can apply to the family going and building the well. You know, what's better, one well, no wells, two wells. Like, it, it is a little bit of a tricky situation at times, I feel like. It's a bit of a juggling act. That's really good points. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a really sad situation because it is people with great intentions who have extra resources, who want to provide that to a community that doesn't have those resources. And there are communities around the world that do need those resources, the wells or the schools or whatever. But for some reason, development is so complicated and so tricky. And it's not even just at the grassroots, like volunteerism level, mm -hmm. like up to USAID and those Vision, really large Salvation global yeah. NGOs, they're extremely problematic as well. I don't want to, you know, name and shame or whatever, but it's, it's just a very complicated system with development. So it's really too bad that we can't pair um, those people who have resources and the people who need resources in some sort of mutually beneficial way that makes everybody feel good and has lasting sustainable change. But it, yeah, the, the, it is really problematic because these people do want to actually travel and be there for those moments where they're breaking ground on the well or breaking ground on the school and have that feel good moment. And that's part of the reason they're donating the money. Whereas if they just stay at home, they're going to spend their money, you know, on something else. So it, it's just a really tricky situation. But as you were saying, like people, you know, keyboard warriors, they love to shame people and they love to judge. So as Jules was saying, like our education, like we're just all about education rather than shaming. Yeah, that's, that's, I have an issue. I have an issue with, with the shaming. I, I, with the approach, do you know the page, no white saviors? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like their message. I hate their methods. Mm. Um, I, I know they're they're kind of a very they're kind of a controversial page, but I, I just I want to reach out to them and say, hey, like I get what you're saying and I understand the approach that you're trying to take and you're trying to make sure that you know uh, these populations or these villages aren't being exploited the way they are, um, and they are. They're right most of the time, but it's such an angry. Like when you when you bring confrontation to a situation, you're going to be met with confrontation. Uh, and I think that if they were to approach it, and and they're they're if they ever hear this, they're probably going to they they have their reasons for maybe their methods. But if you if you embrace the person that you think is is in the wrong in a way where you're offering solution to them and saying, hey, 
I understand you're trying to make a difference. Why don't you try to make it this way? Because based on the knowledge I have on the ground, this is the best way to do it. It's automatically fashion. And I just don't like it. It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of a catch 22 because if they're not loud and controversial, a lot of people won't listen, but when they are loud and controversial and seemingly angry, it alienates people and people shut off and they're like, I'm not even going to listen to what you're saying anyway. So it is a de- definitely a difficult balance. I would not want to be in their shoes to, you know, yeah. try that out. I mean, you can, you can apply that same principle to animal activists like vegans. You can apply it to politics. Like it's, it's the world we live in now where we live in extremes with people trying to be the loudest voice and it's difficult in all the clutter now to be that loudest voice people have different tactics i mean you know sometimes it's sometimes it's effective sometimes it's not we personally prefer to go down the more of the education route because that's that's our style i feel like it's more approachable it's a little bit more fair at times because it's you know it's it's pretty hard to bash someone for some for not knowing you know what i mean like it's hard to to really go at them because what that person's going to do. So for instance, take elephant riding, which is something that we're very strongly against. If you find a picture of somebody who's riding elephant and you start giving them a lot of like stick about it, then that person's reaction is going to be defensive and they're not going to be opened up. They're not going to be opened up to your reasoning because their first reaction is to get defensive about, you know, I don't want to look like the idiot here. I've got to save face because you're shaming them. So rather than that, so automatically they go into that conversation narrow-minded because they're thinking I've got to protect myself in this conversation. Whereas if you went in there with a little bit more, you know, hey, just so you know, or here's some resources, that person might be like, oh, and we've definitely done that before as well. Um, where so the people I, will be like, thanks. Like, I, that's great I, to know. Same exact situation happened with me where I saw someone who was planning a trip to Thailand mentioned that they wanted to go see elephants and on Facebook and I messaged, messaged, I messaged them privately and I said, Hey, like, you know, it's tricky navigating um, elephant sanctuaries and places that might be pretending to be a sanctuary or conservation center from the ones that, that aren't. And so I, I talked to her and she said, thank you. And she did her research and she found the ones in like Northern Thailand that actually are doing good. And, and I, if I would have just bashed her right off the bat and said, you know, you're an idiot. You're, you, you hate elephants or, you know, whatever, whatever yeah. people say and went extreme and, and negative, she would have blocked me and maybe never even gave me the time to, to hear what I had to say. And so the approach is important because I think most of the time, like people aren't going to Thailand saying, I want to ride an abused elephant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah they're, they're, I want to contribute to child orphanages, orphanages right. and make more, orf- more orphans in Cambodia. Right. I want to decimate the dolphin population. Like <laughs> if you frame it in those, like those questions, like, sure. You know, I mean, maybe <laughs> there are people out there who want more orphans in Cambodia, who knows, but. Right. Yeah. I'm sure there's a few, but uh, I, I think most people who are willing to travel, especially to places like Cambodia and Thailand, they're open and they're understanding and they want to, they want to learn and they're, they're traveling to contribute in some way and to see the world in a new way. And I doubt, 99% of them are going to go to Thailand with, with bad intentions. And so education is key. And, and I'm glad that's, that seems to be your focus. It's the people that you have the conversation with, and then they still say, no, I'm going to ride the elephant. 
Yeah. Those are the ones yeah. you have to worry about. Yeah. We've yeah. had that before. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah. That's when you can get stuck into them. But some yes. people just right. really right. want that experience and they're not going to let any bit of information change that, you know, their desire to have that specific experience. So some people cannot be persuaded, I think, unfortunately. No. Unfortunately, this, this subject and conversation can be broadened to basically every interaction every human has with each other. And it's always a matter of my opinion differs from yours. I'm either going to attack you. Or I'm going to have a conversation about why my opinion is better than yours. Mm -hmm. And if people feel like they're being attacked, they'll get defensive. If they don't, then they may actually listen to what you have to say, perhaps even do their own research and perhaps even change their mind. It's all in the approach. I think one of the greatest books I've ever read was Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And it is all about the approach on how you initiate the conversation. It's a really good book. Uh, and, and that's really, I don't want to call it uh, a guide to manipulation, <laughs> but, but, but in, in a way, in a way, it really, it taught me how to communicate with somebody who may be hard to communicate and who you might immediately want to get angry with or just uh, write off. You can, you figure out ways to interact with them to make them think like they have to think in their response to you. You know, you could say something like, you know, I know you, Hey, Hey, I'm going to go to Thailand and ride an elephant. Hey man, I know you're a great guy. So that being said, I know you wouldn't want to ride a harm, harm an elephant. Here are ways to continue being a great guy. And it's like, you know what? I am a great guy. That's a great idea. I'm going to go ride an elephant. I'm, I'm not going to ride an elephant. I'm going to go see them in, you know, whatever, as natural a habitat as they can possibly have in whatever country yeah. wants. Yeah. It should be noted that Bob doesn't have very many friends, so I don't think it worked. <laughs> and he hasn't influenced many people. Uh, yeah. no. <laughs> it's, still, it's a work in progress. <laughs> One of the things, unfortunately, that is, has contributed to people's narrow-mindedness when it comes to these issues probably is the Instagram and the sort of social gratification and the instant gratification that people are getting from capturing this content. And so people are making that judgment call, that very poor judgment call that, you know, yeah, it might, I don't know if it's good or not. It might not be, but I really want to go and show people that I wrote, you know, look how much of fun time I had in Thailand on an elephant, you know, and, and that's the problem. And then you get, you get popular media, supporting that which is just bizarre that we live in this day and age where we still have mainstream television programs and things like that having elephant rides it just baffles me that e like, kardashians, kardashians <laughs> keeping up with the kardashians went to bali and rode elephants and you're like are you serious like this is insane that yeah. this is such a, a common issue and then you've got some of the most influential people in the world unfortunately going to bali and riding elephants and you have tens of millions of people watching them going, I've got to go be Kimmy K on an elephant and it's right. disgusting, you know? And so it's, it's people want to replicate those situations and they want to put themselves out there. And some of them do make that judgment call as to, yeah, but I'm only one person and I'm just going to ride this elephant really quickly to get this, and it's probably up. not that bad as people are saying like the elephant the big problem is that the elephant looked the like elephant, it was having fun we <laughs> we 
you know, keep an eye on like travel review sites and see what people are saying about these elephant riding um, camps and whatnot. And people are always reviewing and saying, oh, the elephant looks so happy. The elephant was having a great time painting or playing basketball or whatever they make the elephants do. And that's the problem with these animal activities is that you go and you think, oh, this doesn't look so bad. It looks like the elephant is very docile and has a huge back. Why would that be a problem to ride an elephant? They're giant animals and they look so relaxed and chill, but they don't see all the behind the scenes abuse that's happening. So yeah, that's probably one of the biggest issues. And then you also get influencers on Instagram or on television that don't realize the responsibility they have to do their research before going to these places because they literally affect millions of people who will want to replicate that same experience that they had. I'm going to play devil's advocate, but people ride horses. Yes, they do. And horses have been domesticated for so long. <laughs> Whereas yeah, yeah. elephants are not domesticated and they must be very physically and mentally abused from a young age before they are writable. Yeah, yeah. we learned about the yeah, people have dogs. Yeah. I mean, right. you could you yeah. could take it you could take it as far. I mean, people I mean, yeah, we could go we could go deep on, you know, like it's but the horse is an interesting and it is an interesting conversation that a lot of people bring up. And I would I would say that I would apply the exact same principles to ethical horse riding things like activities. I would say that horse riding is not in the same level. I'm probably going to piss like animal activists off hardcore ones, but I would say it's not in the same level as elephants. As Christine said, elephants are wild animals that endure tremendous abuse to be broken in by mahouts, um, to be domesticated, to be rideable. It's absolutely terrible. If you want to like, scar yourself forever, go and research it. Whereas horses are, have been domesticated for thousands of years and are domesticated in that sense. But I would still say to people that if you're traveling and you're having a horse riding activity to still do your research because horses can be treated terribly as well. You know, mm -hmm. it would depend on how many hours a day they're riding, their conditions, whether they're caged up and locked up in a barn or whatever. So I would definitely tell people not to, that's to, true. To participate in those activities if the conditions weren't suitable. So, That's actually a good point because we, you know, especially in the States, we think, oh, horseback riding is not an issue at all. So many people do it. It's huge. But it can be really problematic depending on the situation and the treatment of the horses. So it's not always, that won't always be ethical. So that's mm. a good point. I think it's it's important if anybody listening takes away anything from this conversation, it's that even, I think with the amount of information out there, even a minor minor amount of research on any specific animal, you're going to you're going to figure it out pretty quickly. The the information sure. is available. There's mm -hmm. not really the, the one good thing about where environmental conservation and sustainable tourism is headed is that the information is now abundant. People are generally aware, and the the, the organizations that were trying to fly under the radar and and acting horribly are being uncovered. Pretty quickly, I, it, it's hard for them to continue to operate that way anymore because people aren't putting up with it, and so they really don't have a choice other than to convert or be shut down. Not saying that these things don't exist; they obviously do. If the Kardashians are still doing it, I didn't know that. But um, well, I don't keep up with the Kardashians. Oh, uh, there we go. <laughs> Can't. Um, it's too hard, man. There's too much going on. And and it could be as simple as you know, going. Elephants are obviously wild; they're not meant to be ridden. Tiger. If you're in a cage with a tiger, you, there's something wrong with the tiger. 
tigers, you know, you're not supposed to sit next to a tiger. They're just, they're, they eat you. They'll eat you. Don't do it. Uh, <laughs> just think, just think a little bit. And I'm not attacking anybody. You know, if you're listening to this and you made that mistake, it's okay. Just, you know, don't do it again. Uh, Ever. Don't do it again. Yeah. Learn, learn, learn. Yeah. <laughs> and and they're, they're some of the more obvious ones and the ones that have got media attention in the last few years. So there's obviously elephant riding, tiger temples, you know, which are a lot more prevalent in Southeast Asia. So taking a selfie with a tiger, but then dolphin shows, you know, obviously SeaWorld and all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of institutions around the world that have, have copped a lot of negative press for that as well, for breeding dolphins and things rightly so. How SeaWorld still exists blows my mind. How they yeah. still exist and we are still, we still have orcas and dolphins in captivity in North America. I don't understand how it's thought, still a thing. I thought the orcas were only kept in captivity because they had to be and they were no longer breeding. Is that the case? Yeah, and, yeah I think that's... Any more into captivity anymore? Is that done? I don't think they're taking any more into captivity. They're not capturing anymore. They're not breeding anymore. Yeah. Okay. So it's being phased, phased out. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of places are generally trying to do that. Um, but there, you know, there are still, unfortunately, I mean, there are still, you know, we say we sort of divide the world between the developed world and the developing world. And there's a lot of different standards. Fortunately, the developed world has had centuries or decades of being able to break the rules and then suddenly make the rules. Whereas the develop and that can be towards carbon emissions, that can be towards, you know, any kind of standards. So the developing world is is always catching up to the standards that we've set that we've already done. You know? Mm-hmm. So like we're in a great position now where we can point the finger and say, don't do that. Don't make money, don't make a livelihood of breeding these animals when we did it for centuries or decades. You know, there's more captive tigers in the US than there are in the wild still. And, you know, so like there are, but there are still a lot of more obscure things in developing countries that people need to be wary of, such as sanctuaries. And it could be an elephant sanctuary. It could be a sloth sanctuary. It could be Luwak coffee in Bali, which is a very popular tourist activity. But the civets, which are the animals that produce the Luwak coffee. Are you familiar with Luwak coffee? Mm-hmm. I'm not. It's, it's I love the, coffee. So the civets, <laughs> the civets are like this small, kind of like opossum type thing. I don't know. Kind of like a a cat, kind of like a ferret, like a, bio, or like a ferret wild cat. cat kind yeah, of thing. yeah. And they eat the coffee beans and then they poop them out, and then people go and take those coffee seeds that have been pooped out and they make coffee out of it. I don't know why, but apparently that's what people like to do. I've heard it's and, delicious. And so it is. It is supposed to be very delicious, and it was a natural process that. I don't know who the first person was that decided to go through Luwak poop and then decide. <laughs> they to had to have been ayahuasca. Yeah, 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 probably. And so, so that was an organic process, but the demand, the tourism demand for that coffee has led people to capture civets in small cages, force feed them to produce this coffee and put these civets in terrible situations. And that's something that people aren't aware of. So when you go to Bali and you go to these Luwak coffee experiences, what you don't see, you, they, they explain to you, the civets run around and they collect the seeds and then we collect that. No, they're being force-fed in cages to create the Luwak coffee because the tourist demand is so high. And so these are like some of the more obscure ones that we're trying to bring light to um, that are happening every day. 
You just have to do a ton of research and yeah, it's, I mean, I would say probably the best strategy is if you're close enough to a wild animal to touch it or take a selfie, it's probably too close. Unfortunately, a lot of these elephant sanctuaries or other animal sanctuaries tout themselves as being rescue centers when they're pretty much just as abusive as the elephant riding camps or, you know, other experiences. So it's kind of the sustainable travel movement is problematic in the way that they can do this greenwashing with their advertising and say, we're, you know, a sanctuary, we're eco-friendly, we're sustainable. And people hear those buzzwords and they're like, oh, okay, that's what I'm supposed to be looking for when I do my research. That must be a good place to visit. But behind the scenes, there's still a lot of the same issues happening as um, before. So you know, it's just something you're going to have to try to do research, go visit, see for yourself, make your own decisions and try your best, but don't beat yourself up about it. If you make the wrong decision, because then you won't learn from it and you'll just feel bad. Well said. Nobody wins. No. Yeah. The the research is uh, vital. I actually do my research with the, the uh, dairy and meat that I buy. <clears throat> like you, you can do it with anything. I, I look for ethical farms within the United States and make sure I buy uh, produce from those farms, whether it's eggs or meat. Are you guys are you vegetarians or yeah, vegetarian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I know a- it seems contradictory to say ethically treated livestock. I get that uh, it's a little no better than nothing. You know, no. I mean, yeah. even though the ultimate goal is uh, of their slaughter, it still seems a little odd to find. You know, I guess. It's yeah. definitely much better than just going with the, you know, Tyson, Tyson. ham yeah. or, yes. you know, the factory farm meat. That's, I, I think that's very commendable and a huge improvement to go for that instead of just, I think if people put the pressure on themselves to just be fully vegan and, you know, not have any sort of animal product, that's just setting yourself up for failure because there's so much pressure to just uh, cut all of that out of your diet immediately. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you ease yourself into it and you look for those sustainable local farms, then that's much better than when you're, you know, can't be vegan anymore, just going back to factory farm meat and animal products. So Mm, everything helps. Yeah. A great (laughs) book that I would recommend is a book called eating animals. Uh, and it's actually a book that Christine, it's by uh, Jonathan Saffron, Saffron Foyer. Jonathan Saffron's Foyer. And he wrote a great book called Eating Animals, which I read about eight years ago, which is a very, a very non-biased, open, non-judgmental look into the animal industry. And it's just, just on a quick tangent, because it's, a, it's, a fa- it's basically what led me towards becoming a vegetarian and, and becoming more ethical with my choices. It's just, it's written as a narrative for this story that this guy basically wants to tell his son, you know, why he shouldn't eat meat or like about the meat trade. And it just follows a narrative of the meat industry. And if it doesn't put you off eating meat, then you could be a sociopath. If you read that book, (laughs) is it like a modern, the jungle by Upton Sinclair? Kind of. So the, the basis of this book is that this man who's a writer, he wrote, he's a novelist and he has a son and he is trying to figure out what to feed his son and his son's asking questions and he's learning like, okay, what kind of food do you feed your children? Like what's ethical, what's healthy. And through that understanding, he does research and takes you yeah on this narrative journey of Uh, it's not just somebody who is already enlightened on the subject and is trying to 
fashion into your head, like don't eat animals. It's somebody who's going on this journey of education with you. It's very objective. Really cool. It's very objective, hmm. very um, non-judgmental, and it's yeah, it's the best introduction of. But you have to have a strong stomach at some parts. Okay. There were two documentaries in the late 2000s. I think Food Inc. was one of them, uh, Michael Pollan. And uh, I forget what the other one was that was very similar. There was the dairy one, I think, that was really big as well. I can't remember. I don't think I watched it. Oh, there's Cowspiracy. Oh, Cowspiracy. And Forks Over Knives. There's a yes, Forks Over Knives, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Netflix actually did their own movie. It was not a documentary, but it was a documentary. A bleak future for the food industry, specifically the meat packing and slaughter industry, and that was Okja. Oh, oh yeah, I, I, yeah, we we haven't seen it, no, but we, we should yeah. watch it. Yeah, it's it's really interesting and bleak. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> things are improving though, at least in you know, in the United States, where people have the options to eat, you know, meat alternatives or you know have like meatless Mondays or things like that. I think that, you know, you can kind of see more fast food chains are using like beyond meat and impossible burger and things like that. So I think that things are going to improve. Hopefully. Well, then you have Arby's who's actually making carrots out of meat. Oh, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Did you see that Arby's? So, so after the impossible burger came out, Arby's like, you know, king of meats, they have the meats. Uh, so they, made this i think they did several vegetables that look like vegetables but then they're like these vegetables are actually made out of meat oh, so they've gone the opposite Ew. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. sounds gross I, sounds so awesome it's it's uh, i i still eat meat um uh, just because i like to lift weights and it seems to be the most efficient form of protein for me right now it's just it's just so easy to get it but the more i read about uh yeah <laughs> So the, the more I read about dieting and understanding what the prime diet is, um, it seems to be vegetables and fruits. And so I just finished this article, actually, in National Geographic, uh, like last week. And this guy went around the world in search of the best diet. And what he used as as his judgment of what may constituted the best diet was longevity. And so he went to, oh, man, it was like a, an island in Italy. Um I think even somewhere in like California or something. That's a that's a Netflix show, I think. Was it? No, this this oh, was an right. article. They might have done both. Oh, no, no, no. It was an article. I read this. Did you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I've got Nat Geo. Yeah. Yes, and, I've got a Nat Geo subscription. It was coming back to me. Yeah. yeah. So it was like, and then you went somewhere in Asia. And yep. anyway, so what the, the common the common theme among everywhere he visited was it was high vegetables. Mm. And and so now I'm thinking, okay, so I need my protein. It's very important. <laughs> and, and so I'm, I'm figuring out ways that I can incorporate it. And instead of putting meat cold turkey, uh, I've slowly been introduced, introducing vegetables with high protein and starch and sugars and things like that, healthy, that I can then maybe slowly phase out meat. But right now, I mean, my consumption is, is pretty small uh, and it's always grass-fed, uh, ethically treated. Um, yeah, I don't know. Kind of a little yeah. bit of a tangent there, but yeah, a little okay. bit tangent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a ton of resources about you know vegan bodybuilders and things like that. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. It seems to be. Yeah, it's just it's a lot more effort. <clears throat> yeah, definitely, and yeah. more expensive right now. Yeah, more expensive. Yeah, I've I've been stocking surprisingly. Up. I mean, the meat we eat eats vegetables, so how is it more expensive? Mm. That was a good article, though. I'm I'm remembering that now. It was. 
it, it was a great article. It was it picked like five different places, and there was a correlation between it was all the places that people lived the longest in the world, and it was something to do with also um, altitude, like about people being active. Yeah, it was something to do with people. It was to do with certain vegetables, and fruits and vegetables that were available in that location only, and mm. whether people had to like walk up hills or not, and things. And there was like a very strong correlation between these places. They were all very similar and why they had such a high percentage of people that were centenary. Uh, yeah. Centenarians, right? Yeah. Centenarians. Yeah. So that, that issue in, in general was amazing. It's just called the, uh, the body issue or something. I think this is January's issue um, of Nachio and they got into pain and what causes pain and just chronic general pain that we all seem to have as we age. And then they got into diets and what the prime diet was. There was a section on yoga. I don't know if you remember that. And, and the spiritual aspect of uh, having, you know, being mindful and, and how it, that actually benefits you physically. And it was, it was a really good issue. Yeah. Now, and now, yeah. this, and now this an is an ad for National Geographic. Right now. <laughs> now this Sponsor. is a nutrition podcast now. Guys. Yeah, I know. It's like, what happened to travel? Yeah. If you guys have been listening to this podcast, it's, uh, it's now officially we've taken over. It's nutrition. I'm sorry. We're your new hosts. The uh, vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> they, you know, they, they are intertwined, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Traveling, understanding where food comes from. Absolutely. The process behind food being uh, just caring and about the world in general. I think it all, it's all intertwined. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Definitely. can we transition from this very happy and fun conversation of animal cruelty and <laughs> move on to another happy subject of horrible travel experiences that you guys have specifically had. I want to hear your favorite horrible travel story from each of you. Okay. Christine's got a good one. So I'll let her kick it off. Okay. So, uh, so many horrible things have happened, <laughs> but I would say probably one of the top was getting dengue fever in Cuba. And so this was back in 2013, we were in Mexico and this was pre, you know, people from the United States even being able to go to Cuba. So we had to go through Cancun and we flew over from Cancun to Cuba and I started feeling not so good on the flight over. We landed and the immigration line to get into the Havana past the airport was maybe two hours long. And at this point I was just completely out of energy, like feeling like I was gonna faint. So I had to stand in that line for about two hours. Then we had to wait another hour for our baggage to come out because, you know, just Cuba. Cuban efficiency isn't a top, especially back in 2013. They were not ready for travelers, I don't think. So we finally get out of the airport. We end up taking a cab. It's probably about 10 p.m. at this point. Take a cab to where we think our Casa Particular, like our hostel is. And we realized that Jules has written down the address yeah, incorrectly and we have no idea where we're supposed to no, be. This is a miscommunication. Christine always loves to throw me under the bus with this. It was just a miscommunication. There were some <laughs> numbers, there were some letters jumbled. I had the address. I just He anyway, had an address, just... but it wasn't the address. <laughs> let's, let's, it had to be deciphered. Come on, let's move on. So, <laughs> I mean, it's just a fact. So I was feeling terrible at this point. We had nowhere to sleep. We're walking around Havana with our luggage at 11 p.m. midnight. Finally, some very nice Cuban man invites us into his home. We're sitting in his kitchen. I feel like I'm basically going to die. 
and he runs around Havana looking for a place for us to stay. Little did we know Obama was in town that weekend. So the entire place was completely booked. So Obama was doing some sort of diplomatic trip um, to Cuba, I think with his family. The Rolling Stones were also playing that weekend. So it was like a huge, you know, US Cuban, uh, I don't know, weekend <laughs> together. Uh, togetherness, togetherness. <laughs> weekend of togetherness, unlike now. Um, so finally we find a place to stay. We stay there for one night and then we have to leave because it's packed out. And then we stay in Havana for a couple more nights. And I just basically spend the next couple of days sleeping. I'm not eating. I'm not drinking water. I have never felt so incredibly awful in my entire life. I am just, all I can do is sleep. Finally, the woman whose house we were staying at says, do you have red dots on your stomach? And we look and I did have red dots on my stomach. And she was like, yeah, you have dengue fever. That's like the telltale sign. So we go to the clinic. Not before the guy rubbed your knee. That was a different Cuban sickness oh, yeah, experience actually, yeah. when some man convinced me that rubbing my left leg would help me with my illness. Mm. That was a weird thing. It's <laughs> <laughs> a different time. So we get to the clinic. I am basically looking pale as a ghost. So they get me straight in front of the line into the doctor. I immediately take two IV bags, just suck up all the hydration because I was just completely dehydrated. Mm. And they were like, you need to go to the hospital. So they take us in the ricketyest ambulance you have ever seen <laughs> to the tropical diseases hospital where we spend the next five nights in the hospital. It was a hospital that looked like out of a video game. It was completely basically abandoned. I think there was one other patient in the hospital. The lights were flickering. It oh was very God. dark. It was like it was um, like an ap apocalypse. It was like a hospital in like maybe like Resident Evil. Oh, I was just like, gonna say that. Yeah, yeah. It was it was like something like that where so once they rushed Christine up into this room, she was basically in that room. So she didn't have to experience the hospital. I was the one making trips back and forth and stuff. And I'm walking down these these hallways that are completely empty. There's not a person in sight. And there's legitimately like in the distance that one fluorescent light that's just flickering off and on, off and on. It was, it's still so vivid in my memory right now, like walking through this hospital multiple times, like back and forth, trying to organize things while Christine's sick. Oh, it's terrifying. So there's no really treatment for dengue fever. They call it the bone breakers disease because you feel like your whole body is all your bones are breaking. That's how horrible you feel. So all I could do was lay in bed for five days while they pump me full of hydration through an IV. And luckily, because there was nobody else in the hospital, Jules was able to rent the hospital bed next to mine. So he actually stayed with me in our room together. So we were there for five days. That's so but romantic. It yeah. was really sweet. And he actually missed the Rolling Stones concert to be with me in the hospital, Obviously. which was That's very love. nice. That is love. So we were in the hospital for five days, um, just resting, trying to get better. And yeah, am I missing anything out of that? Uh, when you 
when you took your IV bag to the bathroom? Oh yeah. So it was kind of, so, you know, Cuba has amazing, amazing medical system, amazing doctors. I don't want to talk smack on them. It was very cheap. They did an amazing job, but the equipment was the a, resources bit are a bit dated. So they didn't have any sort of stand where I could wheel my IV bag into the bathroom with me. So I had to lift my IV bag off of this wooden post that was hanging on near the bed and walk with it to the bathroom. And I didn't realize that if you don't keep it above your heart, if you put it below your heart, the blood squirts the other way and the IV bag immediately fills red with blood, which is probably the most, one of the most terrifying things you can see. It's not actually that bad for you. It's fine, but it looks terrifying because all of a sudden you're holding this blood bag that's attached (laughs) to your arm. And we were like, oh, I think I need help. Christine's like, help. And I'm in the bathroom with her, helping her, like, you know, hold the bag and then just suddenly just drops below. And then suddenly, because it only takes a bit of blood and it just starts rushing back in. This thing fills up blood red. And we're both like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and man. it's horrible because they didn't, this sounds like such a um, first world problem, but they didn't have any internet or Wi-Fi or anything. So I couldn't even have the comfort of like talking to my family or checking in at home or anything like that. You know, I didn't have my phone. I couldn't, there was no communication. So it was a very lonely five days that we were just sitting in the hospital watching Cuban television. And Jules just running back and forth, trying to get our bags from that place we were staying and coming back. And then finally, I was well enough to be checked out of the hospital, still feeling like crap. But I, you know, they said, you're fine enough to go home. And this is how budget backpacker we were back in 2013. Instead of springing like 10 bucks for a taxi to where we were staying, we take the very, very cheap public bus for about five cents. So I'm, I'm crowded in this bus. There's so many people, it's hot and sweaty, and I look like death, and I'm sitting down, and there's elderly people coming in. And I'm like, well, I have to give up my seat for the elderly people, right? But I'm still feeling, I just got checked out of the hospital. And now looking back, I'm like, why didn't we just pay for a taxi? This is crazy. I was like, Christine, the bus system's really good. It's so cheap as well. Because I was taking the bus back and forth into Havana because this hospital was a little bit out of it. And so I was taking the bus back and forth, like organizing things and trying to get things set up for when we got out. And I was like, oh, you know what? The bus is going to be exactly the same as the taxi. We'll just take it. We'll take the bus. <laughs> so I was basically dying on the bus. So looking back, I would have definitely preferred to take a taxi. But after that, I regained my strength and I was fine. But it was a very scary place to have such a debilitating illness. Now, I don't know much about dengue fever, but is it, is it life-threatening? Uh, it can be, usually not, but you can um, hemorrhage from it. And especially if you take it, because you think like taking um, aspirin or like a blood thinner would help, but it actually can be really dangerous if you do that. So it, it's pretty much the big thing is um, staying hydrated, yeah. which I didn't do for the first few days that I had that. And then when I went to the hospital, they were like, you have, your platelets are really low. You need to get hydration immediately. So it can be dangerous if you're not treated, but generally it's fine. The only problem is that I think there's four strains of dengue. So I got one of them. And if you get the same, or if you get one of the, I always mix this up. If you get one of the other ones, 
And that can be really problematic in the future if you get it again. So hopefully that doesn't happen. (laughs) But mosquitoes love me for some reason. (laughs) And they never, ever bite jewels, which is really annoying. That's because they don't go. They don't like Australians. Yeah, yeah, well, we, um, us Americans have sweet blood, so I guess they like yeah. us. There we go. <laughs> we, were, we were in the Amazon. The best example of this is we're in the Amazon, the deep part of the Amazon in Peru. We've just taken a slow boat, uh, like 18 hours up the Amazon, sleeping in hammocks. We hit this tiny, and then we took a little canoe even further into it. In the middle of nowhere, there's so many bugs, big bugs and mosquitoes and everything. Christine's in a rain jacket, pants, repellent all over her, and she still found herself getting bit. I'm in shorts in a singlet, hanging out in thongs, just like swimming in the river. No, no bites. bites. Not one wow. bite. So <laughs> annoying. Oh my God. Uh, drives me crazy. <laughs> so most of the stories we have of when things haven't gone right on the road for us, we haven't had too many crazy things in terms of being robbed or things. I mean, Christine, Christine told a story on our podcast a few weeks ago about being robbed in Panama, but it was not super i didn't have to give up any of my stuff because of a quick thinking fellow traveler i was with yeah so we didn't uh, yeah it didn't turn out that bad yeah and we haven't really ever had anything like we haven't been super lost or like some of the stories were told on the podcast one of my best favorite ones is one a friend of mine who was staying at a hostel in columbia and the hostel was broken into in the middle of the night by bandits with guns and they were hogtied uh, with the sheets, they, they ripped the sheets and blindfolded them and tied them up and went through the hostel and ransacked it. Uh, and this happened to a good friend of mine. So I never had anything super crazy like that happen. Most of us, most of the things, and we haven't really like lost anything crazy or most of the stuff has been just probably sicknesses uh, because we traveled to, we spent a lot of time backpacking and getting off the grid and kind of eating street food. Not that those things are always attribute to bad uh, parasites or things like that. But living more local style, you kind of tend to pick up more of the local things. And so probably one of the worst of one of the funniest sort of travel sickness stories, at least was when we were in Peru back in 2012. And a lot of people got t- typhoid back in the day when we were at this volunteer place. We personally don't think we got it. We did have a typhoid vaccination, but we got really sick and something was going around. It was parasites and bugs and, and everyone got really sick. And back then we were, I don't know, for some reason, it's funny, like when you're traveling, we're just like, eh, don't worry about going to the doctors. You know, it doesn't matter. And <laughs> it got to a point where we were really sick. We we're like, all right, we've, we've, we've got to go. This has been happening for like two weeks now. We've got to go to the doctors. So we take a tuk-tuk. So they got tuk-tuks out in this place called Pisco in Peru. They're, hilarious they're just like tuk-tuks over in in thailand little fiberglass shell on the back of a motorbike and they take us out on a tuk-tuk to the local clinic we wait in the clinic we're sitting there and we feel like just absolute death and we're just waiting and then eventually they take us in and they give us a bit of a check and they're like all right we've got to give you all these antibiotics so they give us a list of the things that we're supposed to buy and they tell us well you actually have to go to the pharmacy and collect all the things separately so we have to go out of the clinic, we have to cross, we have to go find the pharmacy and then give them the list. And the way that the Peruvian pharmacies work, you give one person the list, they go and get the stuff. They give you, another person gives you a ticket. You take the ticket to a different cashier. You pay the cashier. 
who gives you the receipt and then you go to the final line and they finally give you the thing. So we had to go buy our antibiotic. Yeah, it's a real great system. So we had to go buy our antibiotics, our syringes and our medication. We had to take them back to the clinic. And then, so we go back in and we're like, hey, we've got all this stuff. Like, cool, come behind here. They take us behind this cloth. There's probably still about four or five Peruvian families just sitting on seats watching us. They assemble the syringes and they tell us, pull your pants down. We look down, there's little splatters of blood on the ground. It was That's, not a very uh, clean environment. We pull our pants down in front, in of, front these, of all these Peruvian families. And they just go, boom, and they stab us in the butt with these injections. <laughs> and they <laughs> juice us up with all this stuff. We're just, it, it was super painful. I don't know what they gave us. And then we would stumble, stumble out of there with our medication. We got our butts are killing us on our right side. We hail another tuk-tuk and we go back. And the roads in Pisco are very bumpy, very crappy. And we're going back in this tuk-tuk, bouncing around with our sore butts, just going, oh. Leaning to one side. (laughs) Oh, my God. It was so painful. I don't know what is in those. It must be some sort of, like, super juice cocktail. But it (laughs) makes you feel instantly better. It's just like, you're like, oh, I'm a human again. Yeah, by it's the time, probably illegal in the United States. By the, time we got right. back, <laughs> by the time we got back, about half an hour later after the injection, we felt great, but it did take us a, a while to recover. I don't know what we ended up having, but we have been sick. Our stomachs are pretty solid, like for street food and things like that, but we have been sick quite a few times. We had Giardia, Parasite. We had Giardia for about a year and a half, we yeah. found out, because... We thought we got tested for it and we thought that it was kind of one of those things that could just go away, but it, that's not how that works. You have to have antibiotics like for that. So we had it the whole time we were in South America. And then the following year we traveled Central America. And just as we were leaving Mexico to go back to the United States, we were like, Hmm, maybe we should just get tested for anything. It's cheaper to do it there. They're more, used to testing for it than you know a clinic back in san francisco yeah i feel like if i came back here and i was like can you test me for giardia they'd be like what <laughs> but back back there you know it's pretty normal so we got tested for it um and tested positive for it and we were like oh we got that again and they were like no if you had that before you just ha- have had that this entire like 18 months and we we're like oh we wow. probably should have gotten that sorted so before. what is giardia it's not a <laughs> chocolate right <laughs> no, no, that's Ghirardelli. <laughs> I wish it was. It's a parasite. It's a parasite that sits in your stomach and it makes you, I think, I guess it just feeds off your stomach nutrients. It makes you very bloated. It affects your bowel movements as well. It can, but it can sort of come and go, like it can grow and weaken. Your body can fight it, but you never really get rid of it. It sits in your stomach. Um, yeah, we're not medical professionals. That's about as well. So we Here, let me say this. I'm not a medical medical professional at all. Very far from it. But I do apparently know how to get rid of a tapeworm. I personally never have had one. But I heard if you starve yourself and then you put a piece of food in your tongue, it will eventually wiggle up for the food and then you grab it by the head and yank it out. That's the most disgusting thing. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> I can't be real. <laughs> Look it up. I'm pretty sure it might be real. Okay. I saw it on the internet. You guys a medical podcast as well? (laughs) Oh my gosh. I hope I never have to try that out. That sounds horrible. Uh, Yeah. Well, you know how to get, if you have like a bot fly or something, you can, you put Vaseline or you tape over it 
mm-hmm. and you suffocate it and then you yank it out once it comes out for air. Yeah. So I had a friend with a bunch of, uh, had spent time in the Amazon and he had, he had a bunch of bites on him and he came back and this is at the same place in Peru that we, where we met. And he had these bites that were kind of like big mosquito bites and he'd scratched them. So he had little, you know, scratches from where he'd like scratch the heads off them and stuff like that. And some of them got a little bit infected. And, and so he ended up putting antiseptic on them and then put band-aids on them and was thinking, you know, he'll just try and heal them, not knowing that they were actually bot flies. And then he had this one on his side and one day he took the band-aid off and there was like a little bit of a, like you could see a dot of white. If you're squeamish, this is not, this is not the greatest uh, thing to listen to, but he thought it was a pimple. So he squeezed it and this thing squeezed out of his side and it was, and he saw it moving and it was a bot fly that had hatched and it was basically the larvae of his bot yeah. fly in his side. Oh. And he freaked out. So as you would, he was just like, what? And he ended up, someone ended up popping it out for him. And it was this quarter inch little larvae that was moving and alive. And he freaked out so hard. He went, ended up going to the doctors and all the bumps that he had on him, they, they just had this injection where they just basically inject. It just must be some hardcore dissolve, poison dissolver type thing that's safe for humans. And they just injected every, every bump that he had on him, every bite to get rid of him. But yeah, it was pretty gnarly. Uh, I've read stories about uh, people yeah, go, coming back uh, and well, they, they'll, get, they'll get bit on their head and then they're sleeping weeks later and they hear their own scalp being uh, okay. They hear the crunching. They hear the crunching of the bugs because the larvae is eating their flesh underneath of their skin. Imagine it sounds like rocks yeah. against each other. Like, yeah, that's so horrible. Yeah. All right. Well, that was fun. <laughs> so, are you guys ready for rapid fire questions? Yeah. Let's yes. go for it. All right. Okay. Hold on. I gotta pull it up. Um, so, to make this as as seamless as possible. Bob and I are going to alternate asking the questions and you guys are going to alternate giving the questions. So Bob will ask the first question. Christine will answer the first question and then Jules will answer the first question. Then I'll ask the second question and then Jules will answer that question. Okay. Excellent. Am I asking the first question? Yeah. Did you not I listen? We, uh, we're I didn't listen. Okay. No, it's, it's yeah. all right. It's all right. So, all right. You ready? Yes. Uh, what is the first word that comes to your mind when you think of the word travel? Baggage. Adventure. <laughs> Baggage. <laughs> <laughs> right, That's Jules. a loaded word, maybe. Yep. What home comfort do you miss the most while traveling? Vegemite. My bed. Okay. For if sure, you could yeah. swim in any liquid, what would it be? Oh. Is this like the first thing that comes to your head? Yes. The first thing that comes to my head is Jello, but I feel like that probably would not be a good. That's answer. a good answer. It, it would be yeah. tasty. It was, <laughs> yeah, to my head was chocolate milk. I don't know why. Ooh, also, <laughs> very good. good. All right, Jules, pick two animals that you would like to see fight. <laughs> An elephant and a tiger. Mm. My two favorite animals that I like to like protect, but I don't know why. I just want them to fight. <laughs> I want them. I want them to prove themselves to me. What would be the better one to support? <laughs> <laughs> I would say an alligator and a gorilla. That's a good Ooh, one. All right. Good one. All right. Would you rather drink coffee or wine for the rest of your life? 
Oh my God. Are you kidding me? You're going to make me choose between those two. Those are that's like literally beginning and end of my day. <laughs> um, I would have to say wine, but I love both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. That's the second time we've had that answer. It is. Yeah. Uh, say hello in your favorite hey. language. Oh. Jules, say hello in your favorite language. <laughs> um, hola. Bonjour. Mm, I love bonjour. So if you can travel with anyone in the world, living or dead, who would it be? Oprah. Mm. Why? Because she just get private paid, jet. Because she paid for everything. <laughs> <laughs> like, look under your jet hey, seat. Christine, <laughs> is that sustainable? Um, I just want to be in one <laughs> private jet, just once in my life, and then never again. That's fair. Um, <laughs> Anthony Bordeaux. Bourdain. That's, Bourdain. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's who I would pick as well. He's thinking about wine. Yeah, I know. I actually was thinking about wine before, and I was like, I could probably pick. I'm not a coffee drinker, so I could probably I could drink wine, but it would have to be beer. All right. Bourdain. <laughs> All right, Jules. What is one item remaining on your bucket list? Uh, I don't know. Just to get back out and travel again at this stage. <laughs> oh, I have so many things on my bucket list. Um, oh, actually, sorry. I will, I will remember. A motorcycle trip down South America. That's all right. Good one. Oh, my goodness. This is really hard. I would say... Oh, Jesus. This is a hard one. I feel like I can think of it when I'm not thinking about it. Any country? Any country that's still remaining? Greek islands. So many Activity. countries. Um, I'll say sailing the Greek islands. Oh, even no. though I get seasick, I still want to do it. Don't you want to do Croatia as well? Yes, and go to Croatia. Ooh, I love Croatia. I want to do Yacht Week. I know that sounds so like bougie, but <laughs> it sounds fun. So It does sound fun. Yeah. And that actually... Stay tuned. Okay. <laughs> Christine, who is your biggest celebrity crush? Liam Hemsworth. Liam, not uh, who's the one from Westworld? Um, oh, that's the that's the. Oh, no, definitely not that guy. That's Ugly Duckling. <laughs> Most people like Chris Hemsworth, but Liam is way hotter. There's like four of them, isn't there? There's like twelve of them, I think. All right, Jules, who's your celebrity crush? I. I go, I go back and forth. I'm not, it's a hard one. There's, I think Scarlett Johansson is probably been the most consistent one over the years. All right. All right. If you were stuck in one city for the rest of your life, which city would you choose? Do I have to choose the one where my parents are or can I like choose a different one? <laughs> Any city in the Any world. Any city. Bali. Oh, that's a good one. I would say Paris. I love mm, Paris. City of Lights. Yes. If you owned a yacht, what would you name it? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would probably name it Queen Christine after myself. My yacht. <laughs> I, I, it's funny. I was thinking I would call mine the Jewels. Oh, there you go. Ah. There you go. Or something All really right. obscure like slip and slide. I don't know. Oh, God. That sounds like creepy. God. Yeah, it would be. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And for the most important question, who is your favorite Traveler's Blueprint podcast host? Christine. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I can't answer that. You oh guys... my God. This is a terrible question. Um, I guess I'd have to say Bob because he came on our podcast yeah. and it's even an amazing story. Three go. for Bob and none for me. Yes. Oh, no. Okay. Well, I'm going to say Bob is our <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. The roll. purpose of that question is to see how awkward we can make this. Yeah, it, it's working, I think. I think, I think it's working very it's, well. It, it can just people off, off guard a little bit. You always uh, want to make sure your podcast guests feel awkward. I, yes. you know, like the, the more awkward, the better the content. That is one of the is, first things we learned about doing interviews is to make them feel as uncomfortable as possible. <laughs> makes for good content. It makes it real. Yeah. <laughs> Right, well, maybe we should maybe we should stop asking uh, we ask people have they pooped their pants while traveling maybe we should stop prepping them for that question yeah put them on oh. the spot yeah. yeah yeah and then you can see the real reaction because if yeah. they if they you know jump back first then you know it actually happened yeah, yeah. Like, oh, um, um uh, oh no of course not <laughs> no <laughs> they're like yeah what's the story uh, well thank you both so much for joining us and before we go we, you've already mentioned your podcast and your blog please mention them again and your social media handles so that people can follow you yeah uh, i'll go first with the blog okay so our travel blog is called don't forget to move it's don't forget to move.com and all our socials are don't forget to with the number move and that's where we write about our travels so we focus on adventure travel and responsible tourism and we've got guides we've got tips and yeah lots of pretty pictures and real content on Instagram. And our podcast is called Not So Bon Voyage, and we tell stories of when stuff goes wrong while traveling. And now we have our Voyager chats on that podcast where we have wonderful guests like Bob who come on and tell hilarious stories of when travel <laughs> goes wrong. And all of our social channels for that are at Not So Bon Voyage. Thank wonderful. you. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's nice meeting you, uh, nice hanging out with you again. And yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having us. So you don't have many bad travel or horror travel stories, do you? Not too many. I'd say the worst one, uh, maybe two. The, the worst one was definitely Tanzania. I don't know. Have, have I told you that before? No, I don't think so. Uh, so it, they recommend not drinking any of the water in Tanzania just because our bodies aren't accustomed to some of the pathogens that are in it. And so I didn't. We had water bottles the entire trip. But what I kind of forgot was that I shouldn't rinse my toothbrush with the water. And so I got really sick for three days. Uh, the, the worst night I was, you know, curled up in the bathroom in the fetal position. And I was just spewing bodily fluids from basically every orifice. And sorry for the graphic content, but it was pretty, it was not fun. It was like I mean, three like days of horrible, horrible stomach pain. It sounds horrible. That reminds me of when we were in Peru, you and Brian were actually doing that with brushing your teeth, right? You guys were using water bottles, I believe. Yeah. And it was like four days into the trip and I was just using the sink water and I was like, wait, hold on guys. You aren't, <laughs> you guys aren't using this. I was fine because, you know, I'm, I take so many vitamins <laughs> now. No, I don't know why I was fine, but I, I ended up, I ended up being okay. I didn't feel anything. I, my stomach was fine, but, um, yeah, yeah not but, fun. Yeah, they, they have a cool niche. One thing I do want to recommend, they post little uh, videos of their conversations to their Instagram and social media. So if you want to actually see them have some of these conversations, they're a great duo. They are really good together, and it's, it's really enjoyable content. So check it out. 
Yep. And leave us a rating on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you're listening on or subscribe to us on YouTube to get updated content as we post it. And then lastly, we appreciate your time listening. We appreciate your contribution as a listener and tune in next week for the very next episode.